Welcome to another edition of Food, Faith, and Feelings, brought to you as an educational program under the nonprofit MANA Scholarship Fund. Our program is designed to help you better understand issues related to your physical and mental diet. What you consume is impacting your head, your heart, and your soul. We are so thankful to our business partnership with Paradigm Security and Mr. Rick Strong for providing this opportunity to come to you. We hope to enrich your lives as he has enriched ours. So I would like to uh, introduce my guest today. His name is Dr. Michael Halen. He's just Michael to me because I've known you, oh, since we were like 12, right? 17 years. I always say too long. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Be a guest on my show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you for the room. Yeah. So, uh, Michael, you are a chiropractor. I am. And where is your office? Uh, Roswell. Roswell, Georgia. Okay. Yeah. And um, how long have you been in practice? I'm in my 25th year of practice. Really? Yep. Yeah. Wow. And time flies. Yes, it does. Yep. A lot of life has been done in 25 mm-hmm. years, I'll bet. Mm-hmm. All right, so um, today you and I are going to be talking about how chiropractic care and chiropractic methods um, can tell us a little bit about our bodies and our emotions that are stored in our bodies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So talk to me about that. Where do you want to start? Well, I'd like to start actually with a quote from Aristotle, of all people, going way back here, right? And Aristotle said, psyche and body react sympathetically to each other. A change in the psyche produces a change in the structure of the body, and conversely, a change in the structure of the body produces a change in the state of the psyche. So the concept of the mind-body connection has been around for a very, very, very long time. And interestingly enough, it was only the last half of this previous millennium that doctors and, and researchers tried to separate mind and body into separate entities. And fortunately, we've cast aside that and uh, we've, we've dove back into this idea that mind and body are intimately related and really are the same thing. Uh, and as uh, the more research we do, the more we discover that you know, the nervous system is more integrated into every cell structure in the body than we previously thought. Absolutely. Well, and it's, it's interesting, you and I were talking actually before we came on air about how masks are really impeding the neurodevelopment of children. Yeah, it's very important for toddlers to be able to uh, look at and understand facial expression as it relates to emotion and, and sharing of information. And toddlers will mimic facial expression in a trial and error sort of way uh, to see how to better express emotion. And one of the concerns from people that work in de- developmental health for children is that constantly having masks on in social settings is inhibiting this ability to develop properly and is going to lead long-term into other types of social dysfunction and, and, and emotional problems for these kids. Yay. Yeah, yay. Yay 2020. It's going to impact our next generation. Absolutely. I think the collateral damage from the very extreme protocols that we've taken under COVID, uh, that collateral damage is going to affect us for generations. And we still don't know in what ways it will. There's a lot of things we suspect will happen and we're starting to see happen. But uh, we're going to look back on this and say, we made a lot of mistakes in this protocol. So we don't get off onto that train. Mm -hmm. Let's get off of this track and get onto another one. Um, Let's talk a little bit about uh, the mind-body connection and how the emotions 
flow back and forth between mind and body and eventually I want us to get back to that conversation on trauma Mm -hmm. and uh and anxiety and pain and all that and how it it is impacting us. Yeah, so the classic view of the nervous system is brain and spinal cord, information is managed and commands are sent out to cell structures like muscles, like digestive organs, et cetera. And that is done via the uh, central nervous system to peripheral nervous system. And what has been discovered uh, in a lot of places is the nervous system is far more reaching than we ever thought it was. This classic idea of the neurotransmitter which is the, uh, the active substance uh, within nerve impulses that allows commands uh, to be made. Uh, the neurotransmitter is kind of where we left things chemically with neurology for a very long period of time. But now our better understanding of hormones and neuropeptides uh, lets us realize that the nervous system acts within cells itself, even when it's disconnected uh, anatomically or architecturally. So the nervous system and our body's biochemistry are intimately linked. Uh, And again, this concept that we need to separate everything as anatomists often do, we learn over and over again that the separating of of, of body components is really antithetical to an understanding of the body. We, We have to look at it from an integrative standpoint. So the nervous system we learn is far more complex and, and intimate to our body function than, than you know, we understand. And, and I want to add in there that um, the way that we think, how we process information, how we've grown up, our views of the world, absolutely impacts our neurochemistry. And in fact, I was talking, I think, last time about um, an amazing video that I saw where just the water itself you know, you sit it next to words or you say words around the water and the water will change in like in terms of internal construct mm-hmm. based on the words. So if you have positive words, it, it turns into this beautiful star, you know, like uh, snowflake looking structure and negative words such as anger and hate and, you know, things like that. It uh, it turns darker. Yeah. So, well, this under- because we are water. Well, and you know what? Everything has its own unique vibration to it, right? So this, uh, what we now like to label as uh, our, our new understanding of physics and the interplay between matter and energy is something that has been observed and recognized by uh, practitioners of acupuncture and other medicines, uh, you know, for 2,000 years. Mm. Uh, you know, energy and structure are the same thing in different forms. So water has energy, words have energy. Mm -hmm. There is a vibration to every organ in the body. Uh, So when you understand these different vibrational patterns, it's a very unique way to look at the body. And doctors who deal in homeopathy, classic acupuncture, uh, these are just some types of physicians that recognize harmonics, vibrational energy, and actually use that for diagnosis and treatment. So we were talking earlier, and you basically said that your body can, can tell you or can tell you, the doctor, uh, when the person is lying to themselves. Talk about that a little bit. So uh, some chiropractors utilize a technique called functional muscle testing. Uh, Oftentimes applied kinesiologists or specialized chiropractors utilize this technique and others to sort of create a language uh, to diagnose uh, issues with the body. Um, This was something developed by Dr. George Goodhart in Detroit, Michigan in the 60s. But without getting too deeply into that, through functional muscle testing, we can deal with structural, we can deal with biochemistry, we can deal with emotion. 
Uh, there's a concept of health called the triad of health. So structure, function, and emotion all make up equal parts of a three-sided triangle, and we exist within that triangle. I actually like a different model better. I talk about a three-legged stool. So if, if any of the legs of that stool, structural, functional, or emotional, are not functioning well or are weak or, God forbid, fracture, you're going to expend a lot of energy and resources trying to stay balanced on that stool. Right. And for those in the audience that uh, want to address the spiritual aspect of that, I like to think of the seat itself as sort of spiritual. Hmm. So structural, functional, emotional all intimately need to be functioning properly along with spiritual for you to have whole body health, to be balanced, as it were. Can you talk about each of those legs more specifically? So the structural, you mean? By structural, we look, we, that's what you can see. That's, uh, that's our body's mechanics. Uh, that's our architecture. Structural, functional, and emotional. So structure is what we see. Structure is what an orthopedist or a chiropractor would deal with. Uh, uh, if you're strictly working within a structural model, uh, your objective is to build better structure in a patient hoping to resolve a symptom set or a pathology. Biochemistry uh, is met with either homeopathy, uh, um, prescription medications, those types of things. Uh, and then emotion, oftentimes people are most familiar with that being dealt with with psychology and psychiatry, counseling, that type of thing. Uh, a doctor of integrative medicine, uh, an applied kinesiologist, an integrative MD, a naturopath, what we try to do is address all of those three legs of the stool or three sides of the triangle in one clinical setting instead of having to send people out. And the beauty of this is if we can get back to, say, an orthopedist, um, and I know some wonderful orthopedists, I refer to them, they refer to me, they work with an exclusively structural model, right? Mm -hmm. Patient comes in with a, uh, an orthopedic issue, they treat that orthopedic issue. If there is an emotional or a chemical component to their issue, that's not going to be dealt with in the orthopedist's office. So it's going to require a different type of practitioner. More importantly, there needs to be an awareness that those two elements are a component of their symptom set. And unless a doctor is looking through this lens of the triad or three-legged stool, they may not observe these different things. Yeah, I know that, well, I'm, I have been a patient of Dr. Mike's for I don't know, a long time. Long time. Um, and so I know one time I came in and you will you will do the applied kinesiology with me and I, I don't remember what the issue was, but you said you're lacking in vitamin C. And I thought, how in the world would he even know? Like, how would he know that? Sure. <laughs> so let's talk a little about functional muscle testing and how it differs from classic orthopedic muscle testing. So if somebody comes in the office and we test, say, a, a quadriceps, and a quadriceps is weak, that may in fact be a disc issue or an issue with the muscle itself. And an orthopedist would say, okay, let's go to physical therapy and see if we can strengthen the muscle, or let's send you out for an MRI and see if there's a disc herniation that's causing this quadriceps weakness. In my office or in a doctor's office of any discipline that's using functional muscle testing, what we can do is see if we can try and achieve strength in that weakened muscle through something called therapy localization, or in your case, supplementing with vitamin C. Uh, circling back to the emotional component, oftentimes when there's something called a neuroemotional complex, when there's an emotional issue at the core of these structural issues, clearing that neuroemotional complex may create strength in that weakened muscle. It's not exclusively an orthopedic issue. It's become one because you walked in the door with a weak muscle that causes pain and prohibits you from doing the activities you want to do. So your issue has become an orthopedic issue. 
but it may not be the core issue with why you're presenting the symptoms you're presenting. And how do you find out the difference? Well, I'll just give an example. So we'll go back to the uh, example of the quadriceps. So you're laying on the table, we find a weak quadriceps. I may have you therapy localize or support the muscle itself to try to get strength. I may have you support the disc or change the architecture in your low back and your posture to see if that muscle strengthens and indicates, yes, it is a disc issue. I may have you hold what's called emotional points and see if that uh, uh, strengthens the muscle. We may take a nutritional supplement and have you hold that in the mouth, like in your case, vitamin C, and see if that strengthens the muscle. And sometimes it may not be that simple. We may get a degree of strengthening with any of these therapy localizations or challenges because the problem is a multifactorial problem. But it starts the process of understanding what all is involved in this deficit that is creating these symptoms. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. It's fun stuff. It's cool stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I know. This is your jam. That's awesome. So um, let's talk a little bit about uh, depression and pain. Yeah. So uh, <clears throat> folks, that, folks that report depression or are uh, honest about their depression and willing to recognize it, mm -hmm. um, those folks that we put in the category of, of having depression often experience more pain uh, than folks that aren't. And that's because of this neuroimmunological, biochemical sort of thing that goes on in our bodies where one thing affects the other, mm -hmm. right? So depression, changing our hormone complement in our body, is going to increase anti-inflammatory compounds, or it's going to increase inflammatory compounds, reduce anti-inflammatory compounds. Um, hypoadrenia, which is low adrenal gland function, which uh, is often a, a genetic holdover from one of your parents or a predisposition to it, when we combine low adrenal function and low blood sugar handling, we often find that this biochemical profile often creates the emotional profile of a patient with clinical depression. So just to show that, 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 that one thing can affect another and actually create a patient profile that we'll often see. So you're saying that someone that has something wrong with their body yep. can look depressed. Not only look depressed, but manifest depression. And as you know, with clinical depression, it's often defined as having no, and you, you would be able to define this better than me, but there's no reason someone should be depressed, right? Life is good, a happy family, they got a good job. So, uh, you know, on paper, it doesn't look like there's a reason you should be depressed. Well, we know with clinical depression, there doesn't need to be a reason. It is a biochemical phenomenon. Why is a patient stuck in this place? And they often are because of other biochemical aspects like lower adrenal gland output, hypoglycemia that's being untreated, et cetera, et cetera. So there are certain profiles for different patients that will present a, a clinical psychological uh, profile or diagnosis. Well, and in my field, in, this, in the field of psychology and psychiatry, what we look for um, well, in psychology is the, a pattern of negative beliefs about themselves. Right. I'm not good enough. The emotion that comes from believing something that way. And then the behavior that, you know, they act out, either they're crying or they're sad or they are lethar lethargic. And then how it impacts uh, relationships. Yeah. And then how that in turn reinforces the belief. And so we look at that from a just a typically internal what's this process looking like right right and classic uh classic psychology is a, a talk it out sort of approach right yes. let's talk it out and get to the get to the roots of this 
Um, if I could draw a parallel with, with l l how a dog thinks, right? Let's talk about a, prim a more primitive brain than a human brain. Mm -hmm. If I approach a dog, the dog's wagging its tail, it's very happy to see me, and I kick the dog, well, the dog is going to, you know, shriek, uh, pull its tail in, and it's going to run away. And the dog is going to create a snapshot because a dog doesn't have a language. A dog can't say to itself, hey, that guy kicked me, and he's a bad dude. I'm going to avoid that guy from now on. It doesn't work like that for a dog. There's no language. So there's this visual snapshot that the brain takes. So the next time the dog sees me, it might be a little tentative to approach me because of this snapshot. Now, if this time I give the dog a bone, there is an extinction of that snapshot, and now a new snapshot is taking where the dog has a positive image of me. We work on that level as well at our core primitive brain. We our take these snapshots, yes. our hindbrain. Mm -hmm. We take these snapshots and trauma is often held as a snapshot because it's not a rationalization of an event. It's a snapshot of an event. Now, when abuse or trauma is protracted and all a person accumulates are these negative snapshots, now we have a complex that's gonna be very, very difficult to break because there is no extinction of that reaction. When we lose the ability to have extinction of those snapshots in our brain, we call those a neuroemotional complex. When we can no longer extinct those neuroemotional complexes, now they start to affect everything else. So I could lay down on the couch and we could talk it out. And it's very possible that we could get back to this core event, as many of your patients do get back to that core event. Mm -hmm. But there's an inability to extinguish or replace that snapshot. So integrative medicine, chiropractic, uh, applied kinesiology, muscle testing, these things are tools we use to try to get in to extinguish this snapshot. Hmm. And so what is, what is the extinction? I mean, I know you said replace. Is that the extinction? For trauma like this or for phobias, we talked about that a little bit when someone has a, has a phobia, the ability to extinguish that snapshot uh, is often lost. Mm. Um, so resetting the system and sort of purging it uh, is, is sometimes an option for that. But what oftentimes holds that snapshot in place and prevents it from being extinguished is a deficit in structure, a deficit in biochemistry. Um, let's say you just had the worst day ever and you uh, found out that you lost your job, your mother died, your dog died, you name it, right? And you're involved in a motor vehicle accident. Your physical, emotional, and in some cases biochemical deficit going into that incident is going to create a much more dramatic snapshot, a more dramatic trauma. Sure. Versus if you're having the best day you ever had and somebody taps you from behind at a stoplight, you may not even have a sore neck. No big deal. Insurance takes care of it, right? Right. So the state that you go into these events affects how vivid that snapshot or trauma may be or even if your body even recognizes it and, and records it. So I have a question about this. So one of the things that we, that I do when I work with someone that has deep trauma um, is I try to get them to that core, uh, the, the belief and the emotion and a lot of the times people are taught um, not to express. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we try and do is we get them to express crying, screaming. Um, I've had groups of people like in a group go outside, take rocks and throw them in, you know, into a ravine and scream and, and say the things that they're afraid to say to whomever they need to say it to. 
And so what we're looking for is this big expression mm. and getting that out. And um, my own personal journey, I, um, I did something very similar. I uh, went through this five and a half day program, got down to a core issue and, you know, scream and cried and man, I was exhausted. Mm-hmm. So what is that doing to the body? Well, it can do one of two things in my perspective on that. So we talk about when people have issues, sometimes the cost of correction or the cost of improvement in someone's emotional mindset is greater than the cost that they're suffering now. Um, like a weight loss is a perfect example. We'll talk about someone, someone looking in the mirror and seeing themselves in an unfavorable light, okay, mm-hmm. because they feel that they carry too much weight which may or may not be true, but it's a perception of ourselves, right? So we look in the mirror, we don't like what we see. If the cost of changing that, going to the gym every day, changing diet, avoiding foods that we like but are bad for us, the risk of social interaction that hasn't occurred in a while, uh, let's say dating, you know, I don't like myself because I feel overweight and not attractive, but if I correct that, I have to put myself back out in the world again that can sometimes be more threatening Mm -hmm. than dealing with the uncomfortable comfort of being who we are, right? The lesser of the two evils. The lesser of the two evils. Now, that's not a rational uh, assessment, but that's an emotional assessment. Mm -hmm. So the therapy of which you speak sometimes will break the cycle of and prove to a patient that the cost of change is not greater than the cost of existing in the place that you're in now. Because again, it's not rational to think that way, but that gets locked in. Uh, in applied kinesiology, we refer to that as self-sabotage or psychological reversal. Uh, so we can use muscle testing in that way. So if we have an established patient who is receptive to the muscle testing and we get into an emotional issue, I can have a patient make a statement along the lines of, I'm happy with myself, even with my faults, my imperfections, I still like myself and I wish myself success. A patient that is struggling with one of these neuroemotional complexes or is deceiving themselves about how healthy they are will go weak on muscle testing with a statement like that. Now that's diagnostic, but for me it gives me an entry point into, okay, what else do we need to deal with? And like we talked about before with the quadriceps for pain, we can now therapy localize to negate the dysfunction of that statement. And it could, be, it could be structural, it could be biochemical. We may move directly into an emotional event, a snapshot that needs to be dealt with. But what is holding this person back from making the kind of change that intellectually they know that they need, but emotionally they're not comfortable with? So does the muscle testing help sort of identify what the issue is, sort of like you told me I needed vitamin C? Like, okay, so what could this be related to? your childhood trauma you know do you do you ask the body questions and do it do that I mean you can uh, it really depends on the technique you're using there's different techniques there's neuroemotional technique total body modification classic applied kinesiology you know Goodhart Walter type of AK it really depends on the technique you're using but if the patient visualizes or we can get to a point where they visualize the event if they visualize the trauma if they know what that snapshot is and they can visualize it mm-hmm. then sometimes we can use that to reset the system Let me give you a more uh, a more tangible example of this we'll go back to a car accident if I place a patient in the position that they were in upon impact 
I will get weakness in a muscle test that should be strong. So I take a strong muscle on a patient laying on a table, and we're dealing with the effects of that auto accident. I have him sit up in a chair. We put a book on the floor to uh, replicate the, the pedal. If we have something for them to hold on to, we will. Was your head turned? Did you see the impact coming, looking in the rearview mirror? I place the patient in that position, and they will immediately go weak. Mm. And I adjust or I, I challenge for corrective uh, procedures for structural uh, in that position, and we make corrections in that position. Those corrections can be far more significant and move a patient through a care plan much quicker than just laying them on the table in a neutral, relaxed posture. Mm. So, uh, so you're basically recreating the, the event-ish. Yeah. And and really helping to sort of localize and get to the point. Yeah, let's put you there. So imagine if we were working uh, uh, as a team on a patient, mm -hmm. okay, and we put them in the event. A chiropractor could address the structure associated with that event. A naturopath could perhaps address biochemistry. And a psychologist could perhaps address the emotional effects of that event and theoretically, we should get much better correction regardless of the discipline that we're using. And I know that there are some types of therapy uh, in psychology where we take, you take patients back to an event so that it is acute. Mm -hmm. It is acute in the mind because it's during that, that time that a breakthrough can happen. So, yeah, that we were uh, EMDR or yeah. eye, movement, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. That is actually what we do, and we can actually stay... Um, at the higher level or, you know, like not as deep in your life mm -hmm. or we can go to very, very deep places yep. um, and really looking for the belief correction, like who I believe I am in right. relation to this, in this situation yeah. is really what we're going for because that releases the emotional and behavioral components. Yeah, and that's where self-sabotage, the 90% rule or uh, uh, psychological reversal, same kind of thing, is we tell ourselves this is who I am because that's a construct of who we think we're supposed to be. Mm. I look at the culture, I look at society, uh, I'm trying to appease my friends, I'm trying to appease my, my partner, I'm trying to appease my parents. So I create this self that may be very different from who myself truly is. And the further away we move, we move that, that artificial self away from true self, the more potential dysfunction that person's going to have in their life. So casting off this facade of who society, culture, parents, partner think I should be and owning oneself is really the key to uh, emotional well-being. That's the key. Yeah, and, and I like to just simplify it and say, yeah, if I believe that I'm okay, then I'm okay. Yeah, that's a good start. <laughs> so I would say, let's muscle test you and see if you truly believe that you're okay. Because if you make that statement and you go weak, then we have some work to do. Oh, we'll try that next time. Yeah. Um, I just have one more question. Sure. Um, and, and so I want to go just into generalities. Is there um, any way like a, you know, I've heard from other chiropractic places that, you know, you hold resentment in your lower back. Are there places that people typically hold different emotions? There are. There are different emotions. Uh, the most obvious you would think are, you know, hate and love. You know, uh -huh. heart is an issue for them. You uh -huh. know, love, love is the state we want to be in for the heart. 
Hate is the state that too many people are walking away, uh, walking around in, and, and, and the heart is impacted by that. Mm-hmm. And hate can manifest as uh, animus, frustration, aggravation. You know, you can hate oneself, you can hate a, a person, but hatred and heart often go hand in hand. When it comes to structural stuff, uh, depression and low back pain, very intimately related. And that often ties into what we talked about earlier, which is low adrenal output. So when the adrenal glands are not doing their job, um, uh, if I I did lab work on you and we showed low adrenal output, a medical doctor may say, okay, you have Addison's disease. Well, I would say, okay, that's interesting. uh, But I'm not going to say this person has disease because we haven't figured out why exactly the adrenals are outputting low. But when someone has a low adrenal output, it leads to a... uh, a ligament condition where ligaments become a little bit more elastic. They're supposed to be plastic and tight, and they soften. We call it ligament laxity. And there's actual muscle tests for ligament laxity. But when this ligament laxity occurs, it often manifests in musculoskeletal pain. And because the ligaments of the low back and pelvis are so large and so important to our overall structure, when those ligaments soften and become lax, we almost always have a low back symptom set, which can lead to a disc injury. It can lead to sacroiliac problems, it can lead to sciatica. However, that is often intimately related to depression. So folks that have clinical depression oftentimes will have low back pain or musculoskeletal pain. If they have both of those things, my mind says, hey, check adrenals, right? Those two things go hand in hand. And yeah. can you check adrenals with your muscle testing? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We can we can we can take a strong muscle and we can stress out any ligament in the body and if that creates muscle weakness, that's an indicator of ligament laxity. Huh. Now, I can take an adrenal supplement like <clears throat> desiccated adrenal gland and I can have you chew a few of those. We now stress that ligament muscle test again, it negates that weakness. The muscle is now strong because biochemically we have created a change in the body. So the structure, the biochemistry, intimate relationship. Now, is the person going to jump off the table and not be depressed? Not necessarily. But when we change this pattern of dysfunction, structurally and chemically, we may change the other leg of that stool, which is emotion, and have a positive effect on those feelings of depression. What about fear? We all have fear, right? Is there a place that people typically hold it? Yeah. Uh, I see fear in the lungs. Uh, often results in something called emotional asthma. So when a patient walks in, uh, we have an asthma sufferer come in. One of the things I'll check is there is there an emotional component to their asthma and is it fear? Fear, anxiety, um, those those will often manifest as uh, respiratory issues. Yep. What about sadness? Sadness. Sadness ties into heart as well um, uh, in terms of uh, where it can manifest. Um, but uh, sadness uh, is uh, high brain kind of stuff. You talked about hind brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, sadness uh, oftentimes will, will be tied to a thalamus, hypothalamus issue, that type of thing. Yeah. All right, one more. Shame. Shame. Shame is gut. Mm. Yeah, shame is gut. Shame will make you feel nauseous. Huh. Or it should, right? Yeah. <laughs> I have an issue with shame because one of the things is shame is a you wonderful... You mean you have it? Yeah, yes, I have lots of shame. Shame, <laughs> shame is a necessary regulator of behavior, right? Uh, culturally, we have decided that shame is an undesirable emotion and we want it to go away, right? Mm-hmm. Shame is a very, very, very important emotion. And 
in early childhood, feeling shame really helps modify behavior. And it helps with our moral compass and how we create sort of our, our moral menu for an ethical menu for what is acceptable behavior to others. Now, I'm going to throw something at you. Yeah. So in psychology, we say shame is the rejection of the self and guilt is I feel bad about what I've done. You know, shame is I feel bad about who I am. Yeah. So I would, I would say that, that we would disagree with that because guilt is actually the motivating factor to change. Sure, sure. If we look at a sociopath, right, the, the extreme example, right? So look at the extreme example. Sure. I think one of the things that is completely devoid in the mind of a sociopath is shame and guilt. And guilt. And guilt. Uh, but without feelings like that, however we want to define them as shame or guilt, Without those types of feelings and the experimentation in terms of interplay with others, we don't learn what is acceptable and unacceptable behavior. And early on for a child, knowing what is acceptable and unacceptable precedes this sort of uh, moral uh, framework that we build for ourselves that eventually will include empathy and understanding for others. Because we're put on this planet to serve others, right? We're not put on this planet to serve ourselves which is something that's also being lost in the culture. Mm. But we're put on this planet to serve ourselves. So to have an empathetic mind, to understand that, to understand the needs of others and place those needs first, guilt and shame are important components of childhood development. Well, um, I appreciate you being here. Um, and yeah, definitely, I know we've not even gotten through half of your stuff. Um, so we'll definitely have you back on. Uh, in a few weeks. How's that? Sounds great. We can do a part two. Great. So um, I just want to thank you so much for joining us on Food, Faith, and Feelings, which is again presented by Paradigm Security Services and the Mana Scholarship Fund. And don't forget that you can enjoy any of our episodes anytime by visiting businessradiox.com, selecting the Gwinnett Studio, and then clicking on Food, Faith, and Feelings. This program is also available on Apple, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Until next time, I am Dr. Jeannie Burnett, and you've been listening to Food, Faith, and Feelings on Business Radio X. Music